Hi. It's been a while, so a very special thanks for joining me. I have a tremendous amount of respect for professional historians. Uh, sometimes I think probably too much. But the sad truth of the matter is um, they're, they're dweebs. Uh, they're, they're kind of dweebs. Usually it's archaeologists or sometimes anthropologists who get to go out and do all the cool Indiana Jones kind of swashbuckling stuff. But if you ask a historian to tell you an exciting story about their job, they'll probably think for a few minutes and then come up with something more like uh, that time they had to buy the assistant deputy director of the Algerian Ministry of Defense Archives a case of Johnny Walker Black so that they'd be let into the good stuff or something like that. But every rule has its exception, and one exception to this, uh, in my experience, relatively well-founded stereotype of the brilliant multilingual Argyle plaid scholar shuffling up and down the halls of the Ivory Tower is Kate Brown. Brown is a historian and an ethnographer and uh, maybe a bit of a journalist of sorts. It's her disdain for these kind of disciplinary borders is uh, part of what makes her so cool. And today we'll be quoting a short passage from her seminal work uh, entitled A Biography of No Place, which is an investigation into the history of the, the borderlands, uh, also known as the Kresi, along the northwestern border of Ukraine with Poland, known to us primarily as the area around Chernobyl. And this region was, of course, still pretty backward economically, despite hosting a massive nuclear facility. She has all kinds of great stories of soliciting uh, hay cart and lotta rides as kind of the first Western academic to do any real field work in the region, and hunting down local officials to get her hands on archival material uh, dating back to the Great Purges and before. The excerpt that we'll be reading here is referring to census efforts of Soviet officials in the late 1920s as uh, the new nationalities policy was being put into effect which necessarily entailed a massive effort to record and circumscribe and identify and kind of generally parse out the old Russian Empire's national groups as per Lenin's theories about national liberation. But this proved to be very difficult, and I quote, When asked to state their nationality, many peasants replied simply, Catholic. One peasant said he spoke quite well in the Catholic language. Other peasants said they spoke uh, in the peasant way or in the simple way or the language of here. Investigators went from location to location reporting that no two villages were alike. Each place contained a different blend of language, ethnicity, and social composition. Village council chairmen said they had no Poles in their village, but they did have a large number of Ukrainian Catholics, which made no sense to anyone at the Polish Bureau because everyone knew Poles were Roman Catholics while Ukrainians followed the Eastern Rite. A Ukrainian teacher wrote in to say that in his village, over 80% of the villagers were Polish, spoke Polish, and were Catholic, but they had once been converted from Ukrainian Orthodoxy, and the teacher wasn't sure whether the local school should be Polish or whether the village should be restored to the original Ukrainian of several centuries before. Meanwhile, other villagers described themselves as Schlachta, or Polish gentry, but said they had forgotten the Polish language and wanted a Polish school to help remember it. In several villages, locals identified themselves as Poles and spoke well in Polish, but the village officials explained that they had written them down as Ukrainians because, quote, they were born in Ukraine, unquote. Rejecting this logic, one village wit quipped back, If a man were born in a horse barn, would you call him a horse? Unquote. I'll stop there because I've got to stop somewhere, and if I just read her whole book, I'll put myself out of a job. But now hold on a second. How is it exactly that these people seem to have no idea who they are? Not even in the sense that that's a problem, just how? Isn't this the part of the world where people are constantly killing each other for their nationality? Isn't this the identity politics thunderdome? Isn't the one thing that Eastern Europeans from Ivan the Terrible to Blunto Stonovich 
seem to have in common is a very well-defined sense of who they are and who other people are and how the people from the next valley over have tails and shit. Sure, they took a break with all that communism business, but wasn't a national identity a big part of why that business isn't in business anymore? And the answer is sort of. This is, in theory, a podcast about the story of Ukrainian fascism, but just about the only thing that all people agree that all fascist movements have in common is nationalism. But the word nationalism doesn't really answer the question, what is fascism? All it does is kind of kick the can down the road and pass the buck. To understand Ukrainian fascism, we have to understand Ukrainian nationalism, especially in the Western Galician milieu that it grew out of. And in order to understand Ukrainian nationalism, we have to understand nationalism, period. So uh, this episode of uh, Jimcast Productions presents the Past with Jim's ongoing internet radio program, Ukrainian Fashion Variety Hour. We're going to have ourselves a Ukrainian nationalism variety hour, and I hope to explain, first, why that's not the same thing as a Ukrainian Fashion Variety Hour, second, where nationalism comes from, thirdly, how it came to Ukraine, and fourth, what it looked like in that Galicia region of the West that I've been harping on about all this time. Anyway, that's a pretty tall order, and I am zero for one with episode plans so far, so better get started. you enjoyed Polish neo-folk group Laboratorium Piesny's rendition of a Ukrainian folk song, uh, Ulisi, about the fox, which I played today in the interests of pan-Slavic unity that we will be talking about later. I hope you're also enjoying the sound of my voice, which is slightly different than it's going to be in a moment, because this is the first episode that I've had to record outside of the confines of my own domicile, for the reason that I have a new domicile and it's too noisy. Unfortunately, what that means is that I didn't get to do all the retakes and patches that I would normally done under different circumstances. So this is Jimcast with 15% more sentences beginning with um and mumbling and trailing off into nothing. But as I keep telling myself, it's free. And without further ado, your announcer. So, nationalism. Been in the news lately, hasn't it? Oh, it's enough of that. In the West, nationalism, with uh, Dr. Evil scare quotes, is pretty amorphous because it means so many different things to so many different people, 
And even though some like what they think it is and some don't like what they think it is, almost all the things that they think it is are bad anyway. So we should actually start with a definition with a bit of a what just to give ourselves some structure, you know. And I think probably the best broadly acceptable definition of the phenomenon is the belief in the convergence of the national and the political, or as famous uh, philosopher or something, Ernst Gellner put it, nationalism is, quote, primarily a political principle which holds that the political and the national unit should be congruent, unquote. That sounds like some mix of blindingly obvious and pretty useless, but we're going to keep coming back to it because it isn't. The reason it has to be so generally defined is because that's more or less where the similarities between nationalisms and nationalists end, since there seem to be as many different types of those that there are uh, grains of sand on a beach or stars in the sky. This being a political category that uh, includes uh, Hitler and Fidel Castro and uh, Donald Trump and Thomas Sankara and uh, President Xi. For instance, uh, we'll be learning a lot about Ukrainian fascists, but many of their most vociferous opponents, like Ukrainian Bolsheviks, will also be nationalists of a different sort. These different flavors of nationalism you usually get put into categories like uh, civic nationalism, which I'm sure you've heard of, which is often put in direct contrast to ethno-nationalism, usually along the lines of good Western versus bad Eastern modes of thought, which goes all the way back to, you know, those good democratic Greeks fighting those bad tyrannous Persians, all that shit, which is also why, and this is interesting, uh, when Dave calls me a Nazi, he's actually doing Orientalism to me, uh, which is, of course, ironic. Anyway, there are a lot of different kinds, because that belief that the political and the national unit should be congruent is going to take a different form depending on the circumstances of each of those units, which is how we get into that East versus West contrast. Very roughly speaking, or as Trilburn would put it, to generalize wildly, in the West you get these strong centralized governments, West meaning Western Europe, that take hold beginning in the late medieval and earliest modern periods. And these centralized states become the primary vessels for politics in those countries over the rest of the modern period. Now, the process of culturally and linguistically and politically homogenizing every part of those large countries is obviously something that takes a very long time and leaves gaps like uh, the Basques or, you know, Wales or, or Brittany. But it is, you know, it's happening. And uh, that changes what nationalism looked like when it does show up in those places. The most famous description of the form that nationalism takes in Western Europe is an essay called What is a Nation? by a guy named Ernest Renan, who describes the political nation as a daily referendum of a group of people deciding whether or not they want to keep living together. And that description is a pretty good encapsulation of what uh, some people call civic nationalism, the basis for which is, in theory at least, often constitutional and has to do with shared loyalty to a political community and isn't necessarily so dependent on ethnicity or language or what have you. Civic nationalism, think of uh, you know, Parisian National Guard units uh, marching out of Paris to, to fight the Prussians singing the Saïra or the Declaration of Independence in the United States or the British Parliament singing God Save the Queen, or even the multiculturalism brochures that the Canadian government gives out to immigrants. Now, you may be thinking what a lot of people start thinking when they heard this formulation of a non or less ethnic form of nationalism, namely that identities like, oh, uh, being Protestant or being white are actually very important to all these supposedly more, more civilized Western political communities. But unfortunately, you'll have to take it up with those people because that's not what we're going to be talking about here anyway. We are out east. And this is a part of the world that isn't governed generally by nation-states. It's generally governed by empires. 
So thus, to put it very roughly, and to ignore some very serious exceptions, uh, these Western European strong centralized states with either a state religion or a single widely accepted one, or in speaking roughly the same language or dialects of one, these states precede nationalism as a political ideology. And in the East, it's the opposite. Nationalism emerges despite or maybe because of the fact that it's ruled by a few empires who preside over a plethora of different ethnic groups. So these nationalist currents were aimed less at strengthening an existing state or reforming it to more closely resemble the nation it ruled, as happened in the West, and more aimed at gaining autonomy and recognition and, later on, independence, from Poland to Georgia to Greece to Ukraine. And these movements are obviously threatening to their rulers in a way that, say, uh, British nationalism during the same period never is. So to sum up these two flavors, I hope we've given enough context not to totally reinforce the 300 vision of history, but Western European nationalism is boring and tastes like the paper and ink that you'd write a constitution on, and Central and Eastern European nationalism, because of those historical circumstances, is exciting and tastes like blood. If I was you, I'd be thinking this is all well and good, different flavors of nationalism. I get it, but you started out with the definition of it as being the idea that the nation should be the base unit of politics, but you haven't told us what a nation is. So shouldn't you have kind of started there and then work forward to the ideology that springs from it? And the answer is no. Because as a general rule, nationalism precedes nations. Repeat for emphasis, echo effect. Nationalism precedes nations. It's nationalism that forms people into these nice tidy groups of people that uh, you can draw little lines around and put into little categories like those, uh, like those Soviet census takers were trying to do, not the other way around. It sounds a little counterintuitive that you would come up with an ideology based on something that didn't exist yet, but it's not, and I'll tell you why. Most people who study national movements and nationalism have landed on agreeing, after all this time, that the nation is socially constructed, which doesn't mean it's not real, only that it's made consciously and semi-consciously by people as opposed to being simply found out there in nature, right? Like gender. And that sounds reasonable enough, but millions of people from Ukraine to East Asia really believe that nations are basically fixed as they move through history, and if you can't find them at every single stage of historical development, well, that can only be because some nasty empire builder has been going around ripping pages out of history books. And you get echoes of this in books that mention discrete groups like, say, Ukrainians, as having defined common interests and identifiers back into the Middle Ages before any group called Ukrainians ever existed in anybody's mind. But I think some people, uh, especially on the left, tend to swing the pendulum too far to the opposite direction and pretend that we all lived in, in virtuous harmony, uh, sans tribalism and all that bad stuff, until nasty capitalist modernity pitted us all against one another. So I want to emphasize here that nations being socially constructed does not mean that large identity groups are new or that people didn't identify with kindred ethnic or linguistic or religious or ethnolinguistic groups before modernity, even within the political sphere. Uh, while I was avoiding doing this, I was reading a good book about the Holy Roman Empire uh, called Heart of Europe by Peter Wilson. And he had a good bit about how this cleric and chronicler uh, Tithmar of Merseburg, writing way back in the 10th century, goes on and on about how the Swabians are cunning and Bavarians are greedy and Lorrainers are quarrelsome and prone to rebellion and Saxons are too loyal and trusting and let their rulers abuse them. And, you know, even if he's only going uh, two for four there, we can readily see that group identity is, is far from a modern construct. For instance, in the medieval university, in major urban centers, students would be organized into nations based on their, on their region or group of origin, 
which they still do in some places, although it's uh, more of a fraternity-shaped thing now. The Crusades are full of uh, the Gascon commanders bickering with the Bretons or the Normans or the Provençals and that sort of thing. I mean, you can go back to Cicero's letters and read him doing the whole... Check this out. Samnites drive a car like this. But see, Illyrians, Illyrians drive a car like this. It's really as old as the hills. Even ancient Greeks themselves make it very clear uh, that they have an identity as Greeks uh, beyond just being Athenian or Theban or Corinthian or whatever. So group identities aren't new because uh, my team good, your team bad, fuck you is one of those rare things that does seem to stretch back to as long as we know anything about ourselves. But the key difference between some kind of national identity versus nationalism is that when Cicero or our friend Tithmar or the rowdy students of uh, Charles University talk about group differences, it's anything but self-evident to them that such groups should be the building blocks of politics, or that they should only rule themselves, or that lines should be drawn around all the different language groups, or anything like that. It wasn't weird to have a king who didn't speak your language, and you might rather a competent foreigner who just needed your petitions translated than a guy who could talk to you directly but was you know, just some idiot who happened to be the previous guy's son. Famously, some of the later Stuart and early Hanoverian monarchs of England didn't really speak English, and it wasn't ideal, but it wasn't the end of the world like it would be today. The idea that the nation is a strictly definable, discrete entity moving through interactions with other nations through the millennia is nonsense, but it's very widespread and pervasive nonsense. So, we have, so far, nationalism takes different forms based on its context, that it took somewhat different forms in Eastern and Western Europe, but that it's always about trying to make the nation the basic unit of politics uh, because nations aren't fixed and innate but are generally socially constructed. So we've got the what and a little bit of the where. But if political nations are constructed, then where does nationalism itself come from? We need a who. Who is behind the Scooby-Doo ghost mask here? Who's out doing all this social construction, putting the band together? And how are they doing it? And why are they doing it? What would possess somebody to do this? So for this bit, we're going to hit up a very clever white man named Benedict Anderson, who wrote a book called Imagined Communities, which is what he calls and how he defines nations. Anderson says that nations are imagined in the sense that they bind together thousands or millions or billions of people who will never meet each other and can't possibly have any actual concrete common experience or familiarity, but who can still identify strongly with each other and or with a flag or an anthem or whatever based on what they think they have in common, whether that's a broad experience like a war that they've been told about or a language that they imagine is making them closer to each other than they are with those other assholes over the mountains or uh, a huge ethnic uh, signifier in aluminum and plaster on the side of the road in a small town in Alberta, which we'll be talking about next episode. Don't miss it. The nation is thus, so to speak, according to Anderson, all in your head, which doesn't mean it's not real. Quote, regardless of the actual inequality and exploitation that may prevail in each, the nation is always conceived as a deep, horizontal comradeship. Ultimately, it is this fraternity that makes it possible, over the past two centuries, for so many millions of people not so much to kill as willingly to die for such limited imaginings." Unquote. Now, I know he sounds like a real wake-up sheeple kind of prick, but to be fair to him, it's more or less impossible to talk about this stuff without sounding like one because nationalism is so pervasive. Anderson has this bit he does where he talks about the map, the museum, and the census as being the three things you got to have if you're trying to make a political nation that's going to last. The map, of course, is the boundaries that separate your nation from all the other nations. The museum is to tell everyone about the history that they supposedly share and are each supposedly playing a continuing part in. 
and the census, where you hash out who is exactly is in and who is out, like Kate Brown's Soviet apparatchiks trying to sort out Poles from Ukrainians. So you can see how just because a boundary line on a map is, is a fiction, and the museum is, is curated to tell a very specific story, and a census puts people into involuntary categories for political reasons, the things that they create together are very real in the sense that people understand themselves as part of it and will sometimes kill and die for it. So, Lyle Landley voice, imagined equals socially constructed, community equals community. So that's a little bit of the how, which we'll be getting back to, but now we have to do who and we have to do why. And we're going to answer both of these at the same time. Anderson said 200 years, right? So what exactly is going on in the 19th century that, that gives rise to all this shit? And I'm going to give this two different separated answers, and they're not really different, and they can't really be separated, but I, I'm going to do it anyway because we don't all have all day and I have to break this stuff up somehow. The first thing driving nationalism is the social and economic changes that are being wrought by developments over the later 18th and the early 19th centuries. This is an age where political power is getting further and further away from the average person. Even sometimes as they're getting more and more of a voice, the power itself is further and further away. Instead of your political existence starting and ending basically with your landlord, now your landlord, and maybe his landlord, depending on how many levels of that shit there are where you live, they both have to answer to an increasingly strong centralized state, and possibly an absolute monarch, and that monarch's officials scurrying around on their behalf. So while state sovereignty, as we understand it today, is, is starting to take its shape, it's uh, getting at once more immediate in the sense that it's expanding and it's doing more stuff, like building schools and recruiting more soldiers, and more distant in the sense that every important decision that affects you is potentially hundreds of kilometers away, somewhere you've never been and whose language you might not even speak. At the same time, there are more of you, by which I mean that the population is rising fast. Drawing here from the Madison group of <laughs> economists at the University of Groningen, the population of Europe is about 100 million in 1700 and takes until 1820 to get to about 170 million. But by 1870, Europe has about 240 million people, which means it took 50 years to increase as much as it had in the previous 120. There's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, medicine is getting better. Uh, the potato has really taken off. We're, we're not going to talk about any of that. But people are moving around more too. And so as these populations increase in rural areas, People are starting to move into cities in a big way, and instead of working on farms, they're working in these new things called factories. And these factors have owners and managers, and these big new centralized states need big bureaucracies to run themselves. So there's an urbanized group of civil servants and professors and businessmen forming. And they're increasingly influential in the kind of day-to-day -day running of this newly industrializing society. But at the same time, they're shut out a lot of, of a lot of these traditional monarchical power structures. There are more merchants, too. They've been around forever, but they're getting more numerous and more important. And in Germany and Austria and other places are getting proportionally less and less Jewish. Uh, in all, we call these people the bourgeoisie, or if you're a wuss, the middle classes. They're movers and shakers and givers and takers, and they are after political power to match their economic power and their kind of general importance to society. We mentioned those, those workers and those migrants that we mentioned who are being dislocated from their traditional milieus what Marx would call the idyllic social relations of uh, starving to death in the countryside, and are entering a capitalist cash nexus of dying of typhoid fever in teeming slums. Idyllic there doesn't, doesn't mean good. Uh, those migrant laborers and proletarians are also looking for identity, because they've been stripped of a lot of their old ones by the process of, say, not being serfs anymore, and being surrounded by people who speak different language and who worship in different ways. At the same time, more and more of both of these people are learning to read and write, 
and they're building schools to teach their kids to. So we can say, again, generalizing wildly, that these social changes are a fuel for which a bunch of cultural and intellectual changes are going to become the spark. Okay, who and why? So we've done some base, now we're going to do some superstructure. We all know about the Enlightenment, right? Very euphoric time. A lot of gentle sirs posting back and forth about how if they were in charge, they would simply organize society according to facts and logic, defeating superstition easily. While there are uh, quite a few nobles involved in this movement, the core of these kind of Enlightenment thinkers are those uh, emerging uh, bourgeoisie and middle classes, or in these, the intelligentsia, which is a word we'll get into later. Uh, they're kind of the driving forces behind these intellectual changes, and they've been getting a pretty bad rap lately, but I, I think you really got to put yourself in their shoes. One of the reasons that so many people are looking for a new identity beyond just uh, Christendom is because uh, these Enlightenment philosophers are, are working hard to challenge, but in some cases to, you know, outright destroy these older kind of medieval institutions of, of church and state that were such a, a hotbed of identity for people. Uh, of course, Dennis Diderot has that great line about how mankind will not be free until the, the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest, right? So uh, they're, they're behind a lot of these changes as well as, uh, as well as living on top of them and trying to surf them somewhere. So they have all these ideas. They're trying to put them into practice. They're trying to gain political power. But the trouble, uh, as usual, is that no, no, nobody likes these people. So they start flirting with something called enlightened absolutism, the belief that, you know, maybe if we could just get the right guy in there and he listens to us, we could do all this sort of stuff from the top down. So somebody like Voltaire will end up hanging around the court of Frederick the Great, trying to steer him in an enlightened direction. But what happens if you and your very smart friends live somewhere where either the monarch isn't very enlightened at all and doesn't care what you think, or, and this is the more common one, the monarch isn't actually absolute and can't even implement all these enlightened changes, even if they want to. Now, I mentioned this in episode zero, but that's exactly what happens to the Austrian emperor, Joseph II, who is in charge when uh, Galicia kind of enters the Austrian fold. He's got all these great plans and all these great ideas. Uh, he abolishes serfdom like half a century before uh, anybody else is doing that. But he finds out what creative disruptors usually find out, which is that things uh, usually are the way they are for a reason, even if it's not a very good reason. But that doesn't mean you can't just go off on your own and change everything, nobles and guilds and clergy and royal family and foreign powers be damned. So his best laid plans wither and die on the vine. And he said before his death, apparently, let my epitaph read, here lies Joseph who failed at everything he undertook. So a little dramatic. Uh, but serfdom is reestablished after he dies and it'll stick around for another half century. So this enlightened absolutism stuff isn't as easy as it sounds. So you remember how I said centralized states precede nationalism in the West, right? So say you're a very enlightened uh, French liberal gentle sir in 1789, and you have all these great ideas, but like I said, they are fanciful notions. They're floating around these salon coffeehouse circle jerks that you have with your friends. How are you gonna put them in practice when the king either doesn't care for them or just can't manage it? On what grounds, uh, by what authority, are you going to get your, your praxis? <laughs> what if there was something above the king that was more powerful than the king that the government should be responsible to? How about the nation? Huh? Think of the English Civil War when they put Charles on trial and he doesn't enter a plea because he says, by, by what authority does this court even in, in session? And it's just crickets. And it's very embarrassing, so embarrassing that they have to chop his head off. But the French revolutionaries, when they get asked the same sort of questions when they're putting the king on trial, they have that answer. The nation. When push comes to shove and shove comes to guillotine, 
this still pretty half-formed notion of the nation, as represented by, surprise, surprise, you and your friends from the salon and salons across the country. You're the nation. Anyway, it becomes the basis for popular sovereignty, and it's informed by old Roman notions of, of power, getting legitimacy from the Senate and the people, because all these euphoric lawyers are also, of course, Roman statue abbey guys, and they all want to fuck cat of the elder. And this nation shit, after some pretty bumpy early days, actually turns out to be a pretty useful thing to invoke to mobilize, say, hundreds of thousands of soldiers, which makes sense, because who wants to go die for the king? I'd rather die for the nation. You're the nation, you know, I'm the nation, we're all the nation, whatever that is. No one knows what it means, but it's provocative. No, it's not. It's it gets gross. the people going. It's it's no, that's enough! I'm so sorry. So this notion of nation uh, explodes out onto the map at the bayonet points of the French Revolutionary and, and later the Napoleonic armies. A good illustration of its, of its new power is that when Napoleon crowns himself emperor, he's not emperor of France, like Louis was the king of France, he's emperor of the French. Huh? Napoleon is maybe the greatest creative disruptor of all time, and everywhere he goes, he tends to empower those people who are sick of their old desiccated monarchies and are looking to the nation as a new principle for organizing politics in that convergence that we use as a starting definition. And even where he doesn't actually go, he inspires. Uh, Hegel, of course, calls him the world spirit, astride a horse or, or something. And the image he presents of a nation in arms as uh, not only desirable and enlightened, but seemingly unstoppable, it sparks something in the educated circles of Europe because they're all looking at the French and saying, you know, I'll have what he's having. Uh, at the same time, the reaction to Napoleonic invasion and occupation causes a lot of soul-searching. Uh, everywhere in Europe uh, that he invades and occupies, so practically everywhere, it's starting to look like only nationalism can beat nationalism. So Germans and Italians and Austrians and Hungarians start to pay special attention to their kind of cultural heritage and their ethnic history, uh, whether real or imagined, in response to this French nationalism that's marching in force down the street outside. So among the learned people of Europe, the imagined nation becomes both a political principle and an organizing force, and it gets this deep legitimacy in hearts and minds because it's got this powerful appeal to tradition and these shared historical bonds. So that's why, and then how. So you're trying to turn your nation into a political force, which means you've got to socially construct it from the ground up, brick by brick, hard hat, lunch pail stuff. Here we're going to bring in another smarty that you may have heard of uh, named Eric Hobsbawm who separates the development of nationalist movements into three phases, because in Marxists, they love to separate shit into phases. They can't get enough of it. So we can term these the scholarly phase, the visionary phase, and the popular phase. The scholarly phase is all about uh, ethnography, folklore. Uh, the visionary phase is about trying to spread that material and the vision of the nation that comes out of it far and wide, uh, agitating a little. And the popular phase is when you and the fellas hit the barricades to do something about it. So let's talk about that scholarly phase, phase one. So you're a young person with an education and you're interested in this stuff and all you have on hand are a few medieval manuscripts and some old myths and legends, often in an older vernacular which nobody at your university speaks. So you're gonna need to write a dictionary, but you speak a weird mix of languages at home and German or Russian at school. I knew a guy whose grandpa uh, growing up in pre-war Slovakia said something like he'd speak uh, German at work and then Hungarian at the bar and Slovak at home, and that wasn't weird, right? It was, it was normal. So uh, you're going to need to go talk to some peasants. You know, you're going to need to listen to their language, write down the words to their folk songs. Uh, you're not good enough. You, you need to get some of that raw shit, you know? 
out there in the timeless countrysides of Bohemia or Ukraine or Germany or wherever, and you need to write some stories in this language, and you're probably going to want a newspaper and maybe some university classes in the language, and you're going to need to write a whole lot of history, some big old books on the story of your people specifically in the pure old days before these imperial interlocutors came and oppressed you. And often you have to do a lot of this stuff in secret, or at least very low-key, because you can see how this would be threatening to a Habsburg or a Russian empire who's trying to circumscribe and control people's identities and control how they relate to their rulers. We should also mention an aside that uh, this is the Romantic period in much of Europe. That's what's hot in the mid-19th century. It's in significant part a reaction to that euphoric enlightenment and rationalism. It, it loves folk tales and folk songs and all kinds of stuff that seems to come from a, a deeper, darker place. Than the facts and logic types do you know the only thing stronger than facts and logic is vibes right so where the enlightenment is is all i fucking love science romanticism is welcome to my twisted mind so it pairs really nicely with this nationalism business because it's 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 after these connections to something beyond the everyday beyond the visible in this case to the the mythic nation the nation as whole ass vibe this uh, great big old cultural process of nation building which encompasses kind of Hobsbawm first and part of his second stages, the uh, scholarly and then the visionary agitation phase, it's usually termed national revivals. But if you're listening, you know that they're less revivals and more national constructions. The archetypal national revival is the Czech one, uh, which is kind of the, the example. There you have these guys writing dictionaries and unearthing folk tales and trying to tease out something distinctly Czech and non-German from this in reality hopelessly mixed and cross-pollinated part of the world that Germans have ruled for centuries to the point where it's, it's common practice for Czech and German families to just swap kids for a while so they can learn each other's language for convenience in life. Nationalists, of course, hate this and, and oppose it vociferously. Czech attempts at uncovering, quote-unquote, the past, even uh, going to forgery. Two of the iconic discovered medieval manuscripts turn out to be fakes. But it didn't matter by then. This whole Czech nationalism thing is already up and running. Uh, one current of it is pan-Slavism, or the idea is that the Slavs some, form some kind of mother nation that all the different flavors of Slav are manifestations of, which the Czechs don't like to talk about anymore, but we will in a second. More on pan-Slavism later. So, that, dear friends, is where nationalism comes from. So we've got a bit of a what and a who and a where and a why and a how, and that leaves us with a when. This is where we get kind of, I wouldn't say back to our narrative, but we get back to our subject. We've been talking in very broad terms, but it's time to bring it back to Galicia. We're going to talk more about the kind of actual social and economic nuts, bolts, uh, kind of normal historical narrative stuff that uh, is better and more fun and not perverted theory stuff like this. But that'll be for next episode. I've kind of separated the two, and we're going to talk more about nationalism in this one and then about the, the base that all this airy-fairy intellectual stuff is happening on in the next episode. It ended up just being too long. Anyway, not a lot is going on in Galicia in the kind of French Revolution period, uh, but over the border in the Russian Empire, some interesting stuff is starting to happen vis-a-vis -vis Ukrainians and vis-a-vis -vis, uh, nationhood. So you'll remember how I said that nationalism was often a response uh, to Napoleon's conquests and also inspired by it? Uh, well, it just so happens that one of the very first poems ever published in the Ukrainian vernacular is one from 1807 entitled Aha! Have you grabbed enough, you vicious bastard Bonaparte? Uh, which is always, it's always nice to have a really on-the-nose example for something. And out here in the, the Dnieper region, central Ukraine, the steppe lands, the black earth, the classic amber waves of grain, 
The mythic past that Ukrainians reach for is the Cossacks and their short-lived hetmanet that we talked about briefly in episode zero that's absorbed into the Russian Empire by this point. And the Cossacks are really the ideal mythic past for a nationalist project because their actual ethnicity is kind of weird and mixed and ambiguous, and they weren't really the most well-read guys, so you can, you can put all kinds of words in their mouths. And their social organization was often at least pseudo-democratic, which is something that early Ukrainian nationalists talk about a lot, and they like to say things like, you know, unlike Russia, we've never had tyranny, like Ivan the Terrible, and unlike Poland, we've never had nobility. Uh, we're, you know, more democratic, which isn't really true, but it does show you the ways that these people think. And end of the day, Cossacks are cool. They wear these big pants, these braids, mustaches. They're good at riding horses, you know. Women love Cossacks. So in 1798, a guy named Ivan Kotlyarevsky, he writes a version of Virgil's Aeneid, this kind of burlesque uh, travesty parody, in Ukrainian, where the Greeks are swapped out for Cossacks and the, the goddesses are, are, are suddenly lusty village maidens. And even though it was, it was kind of just a lark for him, and he doesn't really seem to have cared about politics very much, uh, he seems to have started something. Because uh, despite Ukraine being a relatively underdeveloped part of Europe, there is an intellectual market of sorts for Ukrainian content starting in the earliest 19th century. Uh, something that contributes to that is around 1800, there are some probing attempts by the Imperial Heraldic Office. These are the guys who are in charge of who's allowed to display what coats of arms and stuff. This is what I mean when I say cut the Enlightenment guys some slack. This is a long time ago, especially in this part of the world. Some really medieval shit is still going on. Anyway, these, these guys in charge of this sort of thing are starting to question the rights of the Cossack-descended gentry to display their own heraldic colors and stuff. And they say that in Little Russia, Malorossia, which is what they call the Dnieper region, and what a lot of people call it at this time, most people would call it Little Russia, Great Russia being kind of a Moscow, uh, Volga area, they say that there never was a genuine nobility. The idea being that these, these semi-democratic Cossack hosts and their leadership didn't constitute kind of a proper feudal system like Russia had. This, of course, causes a big backlash and a corresponding effort to investigate and compile historical sources to prove that, yes, we are really nobles and you should respect us as such. You know, so much for that uh, democracy shit, right? Anyway, the Hetmanet, it only died out in the late 18th century, so these people know who they are. And they're spinning grandpa's stories about his grandpa into the national myths that we talked about. By 1830, a few decades later, there's a history of the Rus floating around. And it's really more of a political distract disguised as a history, and nobody to this day knows exactly who wrote it. But it starts getting passed around and read uh, voraciously, and it presents the Cossack Hetmanet as kind of a, a proto-nation of Ukrainians. And it talks about their, their great deeds and their feats of arms against bad guys who are almost always Russians or Poles or Jews, uh, mostly Poles. And this is a time when Poles are asserting their nationality, and so are the Russians. Often The Russians are often doing that in response to the Polish nationalism in the part of Poland that Russia now rules. Anyway, the point is that Ukrainian identity in the Russian Empire is, these people are trying to kind of push it up the middle. The next few decades, it sees kind of the steady climate interest and more and more writing in the language that we call Ukrainian today, but was widely referred to, like I said, as Little Russian at that time. You have grammar books written, and then you have a group called the Kharkiv Romantics that have some short stories and some folk tales. And before you know it, you've got a, a healthy intellectual current of, of generally anti-Polish and often also vaguely anti-Russian Ukrainian patriotism among the intelligentsia of the Dnieper region. And that's, that's a word I promised I would explain, so I'll do it here. I mentioned how the chattering urban classes of Europe that are the font of all these intellectual movements are usually called the bourgeoisie or sometimes the middle class, blah, blah, blah. 
but that's a description from a Western European situation uh, that's seeing these classes rapid growth as, as really intrinsically part of the Industrial Revolution. So we can think of them in kind of more of these economic terms as the beneficiaries of, of that explosion in economic activity and whose economic importance, like I said, it's out of whack with their political influence. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, in Eastern Europe, on the other hand, this class tends to be smaller, uh, not surprisingly, since the East is industrializing later and slower than the West. So what educated urban people exist tend to be slightly less of an economic strata and more of a smaller and arguably more insular group that's centered around administrators and tertiary education. Uh, and it gets to be known as the intelligentsia. And it's a word that basically refers to educated types in Eastern Europe who have relatively little of either economic or political influence, but are still the channel through which these early national romantic movements end up traveling to begin with. They obviously get much more powerful later on. It's part of what we'll be talking about. So when you hear intelligentsia, think Eastern European non-noble elites, especially intellectual elites. So we're going to wind up this discussion of Ukrainian nationalism in the Dnieper region, in the center in general, with the one big name that towers over all Ukrainian nationalism in general, and which will be on the quiz. By 1847, so just on the eve of that uh, big old wave of revolutions in 1848 that we'll be getting to in a moment, somebody in the Lviv uh, University Faculty of Law, lawyers, uh, snitches to the Tsarist authorities that there's a secret student organization in Kiev called the Brotherhood of Saints Cyril and Methodius. If you remember episode zero, these are the guys who bring Christianity to the Slavs. Hmm? which they said were Ukrainophiles, uh, the, the snitch, that were trying to turn Russia into a republic, uh, which this sounds really cool, but it was, it was like eight guys. But one of them, you have to know, his name is Taras Shevchenko, and he is a big deal. Shevchenko is born a serf in 1814, so pretty major step cred there. He learns to paint, and then he's uh, discovered when he, he joins his Polish landlord on a, on a trip to St. Petersburg where he meets a circle of Ukrainian and Russian artists who pool their resources together and buy his freedom from said landlord for uh, 2,500 rubles. And he will become basically the Ukrainian national poet. And if you Google image search him, he looks exactly like what the Ukrainian national poet should look like, which is always nice. Uh, here's him in that same year of 1847 when the, the Brotherhood is taken apart by the authorities. Quote, A great sorrow has enveloped my soul. I hear and sometimes I read, the Poles are printing, and the Czechs and the Serbs and the Bulgarians and the Montenegrins and the Russians all are printing. But from us, not a peep, as if we were all dumb. Why is this so, my brethren? Perhaps you are frightened by an invasion of foreign journalists? Do not be afraid. Pay no attention to them. Do not pay attention to the Russians. Let them write as they like, and let us write as we like. They are a people with a language, and so are we. Let the people judge who is better. Unquote. This is a very normal-sounding quote from our modern perspective, but he's asserting two things there that would have been very contentious at the time he was writing it. First, that the Ukrainians should take their place among all these ongoing national revivals, along with all these other nations, straining under various imperial yokes. You know, nobody wants to be shown up by, by Montenegro. That's humiliating. And second, that the Ukrainians are not Russians, which would probably even have been the more controversial of the two. And that distinction would remain very contentious for some years. Shevchenko actually went after a guy that you may have heard of uh, named Nikolai Gogol, who wrote a book called Dead Souls for writing in Russian instead of the language of the peasants that Gogol grew up around and that are the dead souls of the novel. So the other members of the Brotherhood get pretty light sentences because the authorities by this point in Tsarist Russia are too smart to make martyrs of them or anything because, of course, national revivals love martyrs. 
but Shevchenko unfortunately has the bad luck of having written mean things not only about the Tsar, but about the Tsarina. And Tsar Nicholas I is tragically a major wife guy. Uh, Vissarion uh, Belinsky has this this great story about him him reading the Ukrainian part. He, Tsar Nicholas spoke Ukrainian, making fun of him and, and, and laughing and taking it pretty well, and then getting to the part about his wife and his expression just darkening and saying, what did she do to deserve this? So the Tsar personally intervenes in Shevchenko's sentencing, and he's conscripted into the Russian army for 10 years by personal order of the Tsar, who also writes specifically that Shevchenko not be allowed to write or paint. He will eventually finish his service or, or sentence after being posted to some of the most remote parts of Siberia and Central Asia, but he, he stays in trouble with the law, unsurprisingly, and eventually dies in middle age. Uh, he dies like three weeks before the emancipation of all the serfs in the Russian Empire. Shevchenko is memorialized by a statue pretty much everywhere in the world with Ukrainians in the double digits. Here's his poem, uh, Testament. When I am dead, then bury me in my beloved Ukraine, my tomb upon a grave mound high amid the spreading plain, so that the fields, the boundless steppes, the Dnieper's plunging shore, my eyes could see, my ears could hear the mighty river roar. When from Ukraine the Dnieper bears into the deep blue sea, the blood of foes, then will I leave these hills and fertile fields. I'll leave them all and fly away to the abode of God, and then I'll pray, but till that day I nothing know of God. O bury me, then rise ye up, and break your heavy chains, and water with the tyrant's blood the freedom you have gained. And in the great new family, the family of the free, with softly spoken, kindly word, remember also me. You you get the idea, right? Shevchenko dies in St. Petersburg because he was forbidden to live in Ukraine during the last part of his life, but eventually he is dug up and reinterred on a hill overlooking the Dnieper near Kiev, where he uh, remains to this day. There are two other things worth noting in the Testament. And the first is that you can't really draw a line politically between the revolutionary enlightenment rhetoric that we might associate with a Rousseau or a Robespierre and the revolutionary romantic nationalist rhetoric of a Bolivar or a Chosuzko or a Shevchenko. Uh, both movements considered themselves rebels against the established order, which they usually were. And the order that had been established by the Congress of Vienna after the defeat of Napoleon was equally, if not more, reactionary than the 18th century status quo uh, that the philosophes were, uh, were rebelling against. All the business about breaking chains and you know, you know, watering the land with the blood of tyrants is a line from the Marseillaise. So it's all very typical of early nationalist rhetoric. And it's going to be a long time, uh, the better part of a century, in fact, before nationalists in both Eastern and Western Europe grow disenchanted with democracy and start to become the kind of nationalists that we tend to think of today when we think of that word, the, the, the right wing. The second thing that you'll notice is he says the family of the free. And when he says that, he's not talking about, you know, an idyllic nuclear family of Ukrainian serfs. He's talking about a family of free nations, which is also something very typical of nationalist rhetoric, like he called out to the Serbs and the Bulgarians in that earlier quote we had. This fight for freedom is often cast not just in, in selfish and immediate terms, but as part of a broader fight for freedom across different nations. For instance, the Poles are always saying that they have, a, they have a special destiny, that they'll be the first to break themselves free and then they'll help everybody else along, that sort of thing. And it makes sense that there would be this kind of cross-pollination and this spirit of solidarity because a lot of these different nationalist movements are chafing under the same imperial governments. So it's only logical that, say, a, a Czech and a Hungarian nationalist would be able to find common ground. And it, it sounds kind of paradoxical, but nationalism really had an internationalist flavor at this point, which, you know, not entirely unlike the internationalist flavor that, say, third world anti-colonial nationalists would have in the years after the Second World War and for, for the same reason, uh, common enemies. 
uh, when things are all in the planning stages, it's actually really easy for everybody to get along. You know, think of how well the, the European heritage perverts from all different kinds of countries get, a, get along on Twitter. It's only after some of these nationalists start to actually gain power that they start fighting each other and kind of ruin this, this lovely dream of, of freedom and coexistence. In fact, what Shevchenko and most other people like him, especially those in Russia, were advocating for when they, when they bothered to get specific about those sorts of things, these, these are artists, they're notoriously vague, wasn't so much political independence as it was like recognition and federalization as part of some kind of either pan-Slavic brotherhood of nations that'll be under one on, umbrella but with uh, an autonomy that the, the Russian Empire denied them or, or something along those lines. Which I, I said I would get back to pan-Slavism and now seems like a good a time as any. Pan-Slavism is pretty difficult to conceive of in 2020. Uh, you know, the relationships between Slavic peoples having been what they've been for the last hundred or so years. But it was a very strong force, at least in intellectual circles, during the 19th century and, and well into the 20th. We talked about the opening phase of nationalism, wherein ethnographers and folklorists would, would go to the countryside to try to kind of latch on to some deeper, purer, truer sort of ethnic identity. And a lot of people who did this in Slavic-speaking countries came to the conclusion that various Slavic peoples had more in common than they did in distinction. We can see that these ideas were at least somewhat in vogue uh, as early as the Decemberist uprising of, of 1825 uh, in the Russian Empire, whose leaders had kind of vague plans to transform the empire into a, a sort of federation of Slavic nations. Nationalist notions of Slavic heritage are later going to be probably most important to West and South Slavs, like uh, Czechs and Serbs, respectively, some of whom see Slavic heritage as a useful and kind of liberating counterpoint or, or corrective to the German or Turkish-speaking empires that ruled them, right? It, it was a way of self-distinction. Pan-Slavism is fascinating. We could do five shows about it and, and the Sokol movement and whatnot. But if you want a primer, honestly, I'd, I'd recommend smoking a bowl and really just appreciating the magnificent Slav epic cycle of Art Nouveau-style romantic paintings by Czech artist Alphonse Mucha maybe accompanied by the, uh, the strains of Laboratorium Piesni from Marincho. Anyway, the reason I'm telling you all this is that pan-Slavism and the ideas that these, these ties that bind have to the, the foundation of, of kind of national Slavic projects is going to manifest itself in Galicia also. So, we see how Ukrainians in the Russian Empire are starting to formulate a sort of national identity in that way that nationalists do uh, by appealing to a common past and common enemies and a common destiny. And we can also see that these efforts are perceived as threatening by imperial authorities who are going to keep cracking down on Ukrainian political aspirations and literary culture for the rest of the century. Uh, in the 1860s and 70s, Ukrainian literature is, is more or less banned in Russia. But despite these efforts, uh, Ukrainophiles like Shevchenko uh, were not going anywhere. They will be a fixture of Ukrainian intellectual life and culture along the Dnieper until there was no more Russian empire to crack down on them. We're going to leave Russian Ukraine there for now because we're going to spend the rest of the episode uh, talking about how this whole nationalism business takes hold in Galicia, in Austrian Ukraine, the area that we spent most of last episode talking about, as well as the area that most Ukrainian immigrants to Canada come from, and where the fascism end of things will end up getting off the ground when that happens. We're going to stick mostly just to nationalism, though, in the rest of this episode, because the next one, like I said, will be all about its Galicia and its economic and political situation, social structure, immigration, all that good nuts and bolts stuff, but in what time remains, we're going to stay floating around here in the ephemeral realm of ideas about nationhood and, and, these, and these salon coffeehouse circle jerks uh, and their politics of belonging. What we do have to talk about as regards Galicia, before we can talk about these various competing national movements, is that it's a pretty backward place. 
not just economically, socially, culturally. And of the different groups that inhabit Galicia, the Greek right worshipping uh, Ukrainian-speaking population is the most backward of all. I say Ukrainian-speaking, but that's, again, me taking a modern national label of Ukrainian and projecting it back into the past because that description of their language or of the people who spoke it would have been very contentious in 19th century Galicia. That's what we're about to talk about. Especially earlier on in the century, the people who spoke a language similar to Ukrainian and Russian and who worshipped in a way similar to Ukrainians and Russians weren't called Ukrainians at all. They were called Ruthenians or Rusins uh, on account of that cultural heritage of Rus that they shared with Russians and Central Ukrainians. So from now on, when I use the Ruthenian, you'll know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the Eastern Rite worshipping or Greek Catholic Ruthenian speaking residents of Galicia. Not Polish, I guess, would be another way of putting that. So last episode, we talked about how Galicia had been ruled by the Polish and how most of its nobility was still Polish, and it's kind of elite of all kinds. So the intelligentsia of the area by the early 1800s was, accordingly, almost entirely Polish-speaking. And to the extent that any kind of Ruthenian intelligentsia existed, it was pretty much entirely composed of the clergy, because the clergy were the only ones who knew how to read. It's pretty much that simple. And uh, since these are Greek Rite clergy, they're uh, allowed to marry and have children, which they do. And since their flocks speak Ruthenian, they have to learn to read and write it. So they receive some of the only education that's available to young people in Ruthenian. But that gets a reputation as a peasant language, because it is. So Ruthenian, what landed gentry there is, or uh, what few Ruthenian townsfolk and artisans and business people, they tend to learn Polish to interact with that whole world, and they slowly become Polonized. They often eventually also just adopt Roman Catholicism and abandon the Greek right altogether. So the Ruthenians aren't just incidentally a lot of peasants with a few priests scattered on top. They're, in a structural sense, peasants too, because in many areas, being a peasant meant that you were a Ruthenian just as much as being Ruthenian meant you were a peasant. Another way we could put it is that there's kind of a brain drain of Ruthenians uh, to Polish culture. So Ruthenians are poor and backward, and what few cultural elites they have are clerical, which, with a few historical exceptions, also means that that elite is staunchly conservative and almost uniformly distrustful of all this newfangled shit about democracy and the nation and what have you. When it comes to Ukrainian clergy, uh, Manuel Hidalgo or Camilo Torres, these guys are most decidedly not. If you wanted to talk about nationhood and culture, besides the minutiae like alphabets and calendars and church liturgies and the sort of things that these people are concerned about, you're going to have to do it among the Poles. Because while Polish nationalism is building and growing, Ruthenian nationalism doesn't really exist yet. In fact, in some ways, the Ukrainian language in Galicia is actually in decline. Uh, in 1809, for instance, the only institution of higher learning in that language, established by our, our unfortunate friend Emperor Joseph, that institution is disbanded. And it's not because of like a crackdown by, by Polish gentry or by Austrian authorities. It's actually by demand of the Ruthenians, who said, okay, well, if anybody who's anybody in this, in this Habsburg empire speaks German, it's discriminatory to teach us in this useless peasant language because it restricts our opportunities and we want in, so give us German. But... As these newly German-speaking Ukrainian students go on to study in German universities, especially in Vienna, uh, they meet other Slavs, like Serbs and Croats and Czechs, and they become aware of this relative dearth of national feeling in Galicia. Get about that, that Shevchenko, you know, lamenting, why aren't Ukrainians doing all these sorts of things? And they maybe even get a little jealous of these kind of better developing national revivals, especially the Czech one. And they're kind of way out ahead of everybody else at this point, and it becomes kind of a model to the other ones. In the 1830s, uh, Galicia gets its kind of first batch of, of nationalist pioneers, and these are predictably seminary students. 
they're inspired by these other examples and they get in their heads that they're going to start writing and compiling psalms, you know, phase one stuff, poems, stories, and not only in the Ruthenian language, but also in the Cyrillic script, which is a big deal at this time because Polish and German are, of course, written in Latin script. So trying to write in Cyrillic instantly identifies them to some extent with that kind of pan-Slavic, vaguely anti-Austrian project that's taking root in Bohemia and elsewhere that we talked about earlier. So they're setting out to write a, a national literature of a nation that doesn't really exist using an alphabet that hasn't been used much before to record the culture of a people who mostly don't know how to read, which sounds pretty insane, which I suppose it was, but you've, you've kind of got to admire the audacity on some level. Anyway, the local clergy uh, looks down on this enterprise, uh, sees it as disruptive and misguided. Uh, one cleric calls it, quote, undignified, indecent, and possibly subversive, unquote. You know, think about how hard it is to get a kind of a national movement going when the people who can read think like that. Nevertheless, they persisted. The local clergy blocks publication, so they got it published in, in Buda, uh, half of what is now Budapest, and tried to smuggle a few hundred copies back home, uh, nearly all of which were immediately confiscated by the police. Uh, the police chief of Lviv, uh, or Lvov in Polish, or Lemberg in German, uh, it's the biggest city in western Ukraine. It's the only city in western Ukraine. Anyway, the police chief is quoted as saying, quote, We already have enough trouble with one nationality, referring there to the Poles, and these madmen want to resurrect the dead and buried Ruthenian nation. Unquote. Which, as a quote, you know, that sounds kind of a little too nice and villainous and mustache-twirling uh, to be true, but it comes from a Polish guy writing under communism, so it's it's not some kind of Ukrainian nationalist thing. Anyway, make of it what you will. If you remember Hobsbawm's three stages of nationalism we talked about earlier, this is, like I said, clearly the first academic folkloric stage, where it's, you know, about gathering things together and binding it together in a book that looks a little bit like a, a nation. But uh, other national movements at this time, like I said, were already at these later active political stages. And some of these movements are going to play a really big role in the big old revolutionary wave that sweeps the continent of Europe in 1848. Often called the springtime of nations, spring of the peoples. It happens in the spring. It involves nations and peoples. Clever stuff. Uh, dozens of different European countries see liberal and democratic and generally popular nationalist rebellions against the old order. France ends up abolishing their monarchy, but other than that, these uprisings are mostly defeated. The worst defeated are the somehow always restive Hungarians, who made such a run of it that the Austrians actually had to call in their imperial brethren in Russia to send in their army to crush the Hungarians. And in fact, there's a small community of maybe ambiguously Ukrainian-speaking people called Lemkos, and they live up in the mountains, and they stay kind of really loyal to this Russian, pro-Russian, pan-Slavic ideal after everybody else that we'll get into in a second. And some scholars theorize that they were chafing under Hungarians the way the other Ruthenians were chafing under Poles. And so they loved Russians because they could like sit at the side of the road and uh, cheer on this Russian army as it came in to, to crush their Hungarian landlords. Anyway, like we've said, the, the national movement in Galicia, it's, it's kind of sad at this point. But it has this gale force wind of change behind it now that has the effect of kind of galvanizing it somewhat. One member of the Ruthenian intelligentsia who's writing about a quarter of a century later he puts it like this, quote, We Ruthenians truly appreciated such freedom given to us, and leading our people were intelligent and responsible leaders who told our people, don't act crazy, don't rattle your swords, don't get mixed up in military units as some fickle Poles do, but be instead loyal to your monarch, unquote. Ukrainians are very, very, very loyal to the emperor at this time. It's more or less impossible to overstate just how much the Ukrainians love their emperor, right? Enemy of my landlord is my friend. The first real Ruthenian political body forms uh, the Supreme Ruthenian Council, and it actually forms at the urging of the Austrian governor, who's uh, a smart guy named Franz Stadion, 
who figures it's a better idea to get out ahead of all this nationalism stuff rather than have it done to you down the line. And, you know, these Poles are really nationalistic and restive, so maybe if we, you know, help the Ruthenians along their way to this nationalism, we can kind of play them off against each other. This is classic imperial stuff, right? You find a subjugated group, and you give them a little bit of power against their subjugating group, and then they're your good friends, and you can keep everybody divided in line. The Austrians are really good at this stuff by this point in their history, right? They've been doing it a long time. It's like the, like the British do in India. And for years after this, actually, the Polish people in Galicia are going to accuse the Austrians of inventing the Ruthenians, kind of implying that the whole business about there being a Ruthenian nation is like a psyop that's been cooked up in a lab in Vienna to undermine Polish nationalism. Franz study on that governor, he also abolishes the corvée labor system and frees Ruthenian peasants from having to work for free for Polish landlords. You can kind of see this guy's angle. Uh, pretty smart guy. You almost have to respect it. Anyway, this petition, it's about as loyalist and meek as you would expect from a lot of priests uh, filling the vacuum of national representatives. And it asks for some reforms, uh, many of which, of course, have to do with elevating the status of the Greek Catholic Church to put it on a level with the Polish Catholics and that sort of thing. Uh, also includes, you know, demands for more education in Ruthenian, and its most important demand, and it's one that's going to stick around until the war, which asks that the mixed Polish and Ruthenian Galicia be split into two provinces— one of which, the western one that would be mostly Polish, and the other one would be mostly Ukrainian, right? Because as it stands now, the Ukrainians have a slight advantage in numbers, but it's not enough of a one to subvert the social order, and they figure that if their more Ruthenian part of Galicia were cut away, they could have a better run of it. It also, uh, quite importantly, describes the Ruthenians as belonging to a greater Ruthenian nation, most of which lives in Russia, right? So now this is Ukrainians by another name. This council, they send their representatives to the First Slavic Congress in Prague. Very pan-Slavic stuff, where, you know, that's where all the spiciest national revival stuff is going on. It's not really clear what the Congress is actually for or what its objectives are, but everybody's very excited to be there. Unfortunately, the Ruthenians, they end up spending most of their time squabbling with the Polish Galician delegation. You know, very unhappy couple at a dinner party vibes. And so to avoid them spoiling the evening, the heads of the Congress make them kiss and make up and make concessions. And, okay, you drop the demand for the partition, you recognize them as well. At this point, the Austrians, they shell Prague, they disband the Congress by force, and uh, nothing is accomplished. However, like most 1848 goings-on, it turns out you can only put the cat most of the way back in the bag. So nothing concrete doesn't mean nothing. So these national movements aren't going anywhere just because their street barricades are breached. And the Habsburgs are so spooked by all this that they make a parliament and they have elections with universal suffrage, crazy stuff. And even though the Ruthenians are hopelessly disorganized, they manage to elect a few of their own. And the Ruthenian delegates, uh, they argue valiantly in, in this really kind of neat Mr. Smichov goes to Vienna moment that uh, Galicia should be split, like I mentioned earlier, and that their landlords should not be compensated as they're demanding for the abolition of serfdom. One guy, just a normal peasant, stands up and says, let the whips and knots that they lashed our tired bodies with be our indemnity payment. Dramatic stuff. Um, anyway, as Ukrainians do, they lose both votes, and the parliament is abolished after a few months anyway, and all of its decrees are rescinded. The empire, though, they decide that they're going to delegate some power to local elites to keep them all in line, which sounds great, except all the elites in Galicia are Polish. So we're pretty much back to the same old system of Polish domination as the nobles vie for power at the imperial administration. And this is why why Ukrainians in this region love the emperor so much, right? Because usually what's good for him is good for them. So the Ruthenians, they're getting more and more loyal to the emperor, such that uh, they become known by this nickname, the Tyrolians of the East. You know Tyrol, like the Tyrolean hat, like the guy with the feather in his cap and the big, 
you know, mountain horn thing. That's like a part of the Alps where the Habsburgs kind of got their start. So they're kind of the only people that are capital A Austrian when Austria is mostly just a corporate headquarters. Anyway, the idea is that they're super loyal and the only people as loyal to the emperor as they are, are the Ruthenians. So uh, the 1860s, they're kind of a low point for Ruthenians politically because the Poles have won uh, 1848 as much as anybody did. And when the Poles win, the Ruthenians lose. But being shut out of politics means that, if anything, the nationalism end of things finally starts to get some steam. Nationalism in post-1848 Galicia, uh, at first it's dominated by a group called the Old Ruthenians, which are a weird clerical thing that they say that Ruthenia is its own kind of nation, and it's all very esoteric and vague, and anyway, they die out pretty quickly. For the most part, Galician nationalism is split into two camps. You got your Russophiles, and you got your Populists. We're going to talk about both of them the Russophiles, and then the populists in turn, and then we're going to talk about how the populists eventually win out. So the Russophiles, uh, their position is best summarized probably by this quote from their newspaper called Slomo, or The Word, in 1866, pretty much the only Ukrainian newspaper of note at this time. Quote, We can no longer separate ourselves by a Chinese wall from our brothers and reject the linguistic, literary, religious, and ethnic ties that bind us with the entire Russian world. We are no longer the Ruthenians of 1848. We are genuine Russians, unquote. These guys are um, the Russia boots. Uh, they're like all weebs. They tend to have pretty reactionary views on, on everything. And you can imagine what a, what a weeb for Imperial Russia would think of, of socialism or democracy or independence or anything else like that. But it's important to put ourselves in their shoes to some extent. They had a saying that if they were to drown, they would rather it be in a Russian sea than a Polish swamp. You know, we're so sick of the devil we know that we'd rather throw in our lot with the devil we don't. Uh, you know, at least those people wouldn't be forcing a different alphabet and religion and calendar on us. Very real politique in a sense. But uh, most adherents to the Russophile tendency are people in older, uh, stolid, respectable circles of established clerics and professionals and administrators and stuff. And they advocate this cultural affinity with Russia, and they get into fights about language and alphabets, trying to prove that there is no significant difference between Ruthenian and Russian culture. One of them famously says that, oh, our language is actually older and purer than what they speak in Russian today, so literary Russian, well, a Galician can pick it up in an hour, uh, was what he said, with the result being that the Russophiles are all trying to, like, cobble Old Church Slavonic and Ruthenian and Russian into, like, the letters that they send back and forth to each other, and it's always changing. It's, it's, it's not a good look. It, it doesn't end up working out. Now, Ukrainophiles also became known as populists on account of their kind of, they center the people and the peasantry, and they claim to be acting in their name or on their behalf. And these are the folks that are pushing the line that Galician Ruthenians, they're part of one nation. It stretches from the Carpathians all the way across the steppes and Dnieper and Shevchenko and all those Cossack folks to the Caucasus, and that they share a common language and a common folklore and a common history. And they trace this history from Kiev and the Rus right through to the Cossack Hetmanet. Russians be damned. The most important Ukrainophile populist is a guy named, second name you have to remember out of this episode, Ivan Franco. He's born in 1856 into a rare middle-class Ukrainian family. Young Ivan receives an education, but after a series of conflicts with Polish administrators, manages to get himself kicked out of Lviv University, what is today called the National Ivan Franco University of Lviv. Uh, life's funny like that. Over the course of his life, uh, dying in 1916 uh, in middle age, he produces a prodigious body of literary and political work. He's in on the ground floor of the Ukrainian National Democratic Party, which becomes the biggest party in Galicia, kind of down the road by the time the war begins. 
and Franco represents kind of the agrarian socialist radical wing of the party. You may be wondering, as an aside, where the communists are in all of this, and the answer is they're nowhere, because there's not really a Ruthenian proletariat. What tiny proletariat exists is like one-fifth Ukrainian, right? Like I said, people move to towns and they become Polonized. And so there are very few capital W workers, and they're mostly Polish. Franco reads Marx and Engels, he's familiar with them, and he likes parts of it, but he thinks Marx is too dismissive of the political potential of the peasants. Uh, which is fair enough, uh, but you know, if you know where the story is going, you could probably make the argument that Marx gets the last laugh there, but that's a story for another day. The fact that this guy, he's not even a Marxist, and the Soviets, when they arrive, they still name everything in sight after him, it kind of shows you how starved this part of the world is for a real true blue communist. Franco writes poetry, or true red, I guess. He translates Shakespeare and Goethe and Dante and a bunch of other people into Ukrainian for the first time. He also writes the first Ukrainian detective novel, which doesn't maybe sound like a huge deal, but you need to understand that this part of the world goes absolutely apeshit for detective novels. I don't know what it is with Slavs. I once walked into a hotel lobby in Lviv, and I spent like 30 seconds staring at the TV and rubbing my eyes because I couldn't believe them because they were playing uh, Marple Mysteries reruns, like dubbed into Ukrainian. So if anybody's wondering why that's uh, still on TV, it's, I guess, because they're getting that sweet Ukrainian syndication money. Anyway, Ivan Franco, you know, maybe... Like, do Slovaks watch Republic of Doyle? Anyway, Ivan Franco is the guy for Ukrainian populism right up until the turn of the century and after. So we quote Shevchenko, and so now we have to quote Franco. And this is from his famous work, Kamenyari, or The Stonecutters. The context for this is just the end, but uh, he has a dream where he imagines himself as part of a, a chain gang in a rock quarry. Quote, a solid highway we could build, so that following us, into the world, new life, new hopes might find a way. And everyone knew, too, that somewhere in the world, that we had left behind for chains and painful toil, were mothers, sweethearts, wives, and little ones who wept, and friends and enemies who, pitying or in wrath, cursed us and our enterprise and our toil achieved. We all knew this, and many a time our souls it grieved, our hearts would fall almost as sorrow gripped the breast, yet neither grief, discouragement, nor weariness, nor fear of those who cursed could stay us in our toil, and not a one let fall the weapon from his hands. So thus we onward move, into one body, fused by one great purpose holy, sledges in our hands. What though we be accursed and by the world forgot, we'll rend the poisoning rock and lay straight paths and true, that light and liberty may come even over our bones. So very reminiscent of Shevchenko's work, right? And, and consciously so. This is a common enterprise, we're all in it together, it's going to be a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, but, uh, you know, we got this. So how did these folks win out? And how did they end up controlling uh, most of the hearts and minds and institutions uh, that were out there to be controlled? And how did the Russophiles lose? We can say that the populists end up winning out for, I think, four major reasons. And the first, maybe most important, was the threat that each tendency posed, or rather didn't pose, in the case of the populists, to imperial hegemony in Galicia. And put simply, the populists just weren't very threatening. Not even the more radical and socialist manifestations. The years after the turn of the century are a bit of a golden age for totally bonkers, batshit insane revisionist Marxist tendencies in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Austro-Marxism, just Google it, honestly. But the point is that an agrarian kind of non-revolutionary movement like the Ukrainian populace and even the radical Democrats among them, it wasn't really making anyone in Vienna lose any sleep at night. Not like Polish nationalism was, right? That's doing revolts all the time. There's armies attached to it. It's scary stuff. And it's not easy to fault the populace for their kind of general lack of a rabble-rousing temperament uh, as the empire is concerned, because after all, you know, they're populists, they're going out to the peasants and talking to them and in theory acting on their behalf. And 
these peasants are just as rabidly pro-empire as they'd been since the empire showed up and eased the yoke, sometimes literally, of Polish overlordship back in the late 18th century. So this is a really top-to-bottom pro-emperor province on the Ruthenian side, and it also means that the Russophiles were always very careful to circumscribe what little of a political program they had and assure everybody of how loyal they were, and this was just culture, you know, nobody need to get upset. But when you're going around telling everybody how you're actually part of the brotherhood of nations of the much bigger, much stronger empire next door that keeps going to war with its neighbors, there's, you know, just no way that isn't going to make people nervous. And it does. So the Austrians are eager to keep their Tyrolians of the East loyal, and they're worried about Russophile influence, potentially splitting Ruthenian loyalty. Which brings us to the second reason that the Ukrainophiles end up winning out, which is that Ukrainian and Austrian identities are compatible in a way that Russian and Austrian identities just weren't. Loyalty to Ukrainianism, it was loyalty to a national ideal that didn't necessarily have to conflict with the actually existing power structures. These are really oppressed people, right? They're not necessarily out for independence as a starting demand. This is kind of a colonial situation, but the Austrians, this is their model, right? You can be whatever you are and also a good and loyal Austrian. That's how they managed to survive as long as they did. Think of Kate Brown's uh, Soviet peasants and how comfortable they are with having multiple identities that are based on, on local traditions and local history and often situational. But loyalty to Russia? has really tangible strings attached. And the Russophiles actually get some funding, stipends, scholarships, stuff like that from Imperial Russia, which just makes the Austrians much more nervous. Third, the Ukrainianophile populace, they just won because they worked harder and people liked them more. They were out, you know, pounding ground, clapping cheeks, talking to people, organizing them, uh, founding cooperatives, building cultural institutions, uh, trying to get elected to the provincial assembly uh, called the Diet with just an energy that the Russophiles could never really match. Uh, in a sense, the Ukrainophiles are able to move to that third phase of nationalism that we mentioned Hobbsbaum talking about, the political agitation phase, in a way that the Russophiles never quite managed to. Lastly, but far from leastly, the Ukrainophiles have help from two places. First from the Empire, who are never kind of directly propping them up, but whose uh, tacit support they did often enjoy in order to keep the Poles on their toes and the Russophiles down. And secondly, from other Ukrainian nationalists across the border. As the Tsarist authorities, they cracked down on Ukrainian nationalist currents in the 1860s and 70s in the Dnieper region, in the center. Some of that intelligentsia looks to Galicia as a place where Ukrainian culture and political agitation can continue under the comparatively benevolent Habsburgs. So the age of nationalism, as just a bit of an aside, is of course the age of national unification movements, uh, right? Austria has just been booted from their holdings and their positions of influence in Italy by a nationalist movement that started in the northwestern kingdom of Piedmont. Piedmont became the driving force behind this unification and eventually ended up taking charge of the whole thing, right? The kings of Italy were formerly kings of Piedmont. So during this period, some people start to refer to Galicia as a potential Ukrainian Piedmont, meaning that it would be the wellspring of, of cultural and political will that would eventually kind of spread to liberate the whole nation, right? Starting point. And one such guy, another name worth remembering because we will talk about him later, but, you know, not up there with the two. Uh, Mikhailo Khrushchevsky, uh, maybe the greatest Ukrainian intellectual of his age in the more academic sense. And he comes to Galicia from the university in Kiev uh, after the Russians banned publications in Ukrainian. And he comes to head the Shevchenko Scientific Society, right? One of those cultural institution think tanky things I mentioned to keep that sort of output flowing. The exact opposite of this is happening with the Russophiles because their best and brightest 
they keep leaving for Russia, right? Not surprisingly. By the turn of the century, uh, Russophilia is more or less a spent force. John Paul Himke says that in the church they were known as bison because they were a, a, a shaggy breed of large lumbering mammals that were about to go extinct. Since the Russophiles don't play a big role in the rest of our story, we should kind of tie up this loose end. Fast forwarding a bit, when the war breaks out in 1914, the Austrians, who, who can be really nasty, they crack down on the Russophiles because by this point they obviously see them as a potential seventh column that would help the Russian army in the war, which they probably would have. Hundreds of, of pro-Russian Ruthenians are shot, hundreds more uh, die of exposure in this really wretched Austrian internment camp. One Russophile among them, whose name I'm not making up, named Maxim Sandovich, he becomes the first Orthodox saint from that kind of Carpathian Lemko area. You remember I was talking where that little group of people in the mountains stay really loyal to Russia because they're anti-Hungarian and have no time for this Ukraine nonsense. Anyway, he becomes the first Orthodox saint from his his nation of being of the Lemkos, and it's, it's a big deal to be like the first saint from your nation. Anyway, he converts to Russian Orthodoxy from Greek Catholicism, and he dies in front of an Austrian firing squad with uh, the name of Holy Mother Russia on his lips. So, looking back, it's the turn of the century. Uh, what's going on? The American frontier is closed. Uh, an Italian man is, is standing on a hill in St. John's getting a radio transmission. The Boers are warring. The Boxers are rebelling. The Russians are, are starting to look a little shaky. Zeppelin's invented. The Hershey bar's invented. And the populists are, are consolidating their hold on the intelligentsia and some of the still dirt-poor and starving population of Galicia. Really little has changed for them in all of this, right? Like I said, this is the ephemeral realm of ideas we're talking about. And the realm of ideas, it's, if anything, less important in Galicia than anywhere else in Europe at this point. Anyway, so what did we learn from this? This kind of jaunt through nationalism as concept, to nationalism in Ukraine, to nationalism in Galicia. What was the point? The most important thing is that in subtly spreading the glory of Ukrainian culture, in the immortal words of Taras Shevchenko and Ivan Franco, to a probably nefarious and possibly pro-Muscovite audience, the direct deposits that I get from glorious President Zelensky's Ministry of Culture for doing this show will keep hitting my account. So that's the main thing, but that's not the only reason. We started out with plain old exposition of where nationalism comes from and where Ukrainian national identity comes from, which I think is worthwhile on its own, and I hope you learned something from it. I certainly did. But I felt that I had to start there so I can get to what we've been talking about in the past half hour. The idea basically is that nationalism and national identity and nation itself are, are they're contingent and they're situational things. Kind of the number one scholar of, of Galicia, uh, Robert Magoshi, he reminds us that it's not right to treat the Russophiles or even those old Ruthenians I mentioned as dead ends, right? In studying nations, we tend to forget that national history is usually written by the victors, like the saying goes. And it sounds obvious, but if it weren't for the really specific time and place, Western Ukrainian nationalism and, by extension, Western Ukrainian fascism would never have gotten off the ground. Modern nationalists, they need to everybody to think that theirs was the only way, that they have some kind of unique claim, right? that every other way was either a betrayal or a mistake or a dead end or useless at best and treasonous at worst, that they have kind of a special destiny of national salvation that every other patriot who doesn't fall in line is actively impeding. And even with all these ineffectual book-learning types fighting tooth and nail to establish their own cultural turf, you still get people like Kate Brown's peasants, uh, whose identity is a completely hopeless mishmash of different religious and linguistic and cultural currents, 
So nobody's nationalism project is finished, and it's due in 1918, and they're going to be violently docked late marks by about every single combatant in the Russian and Ukrainian civil war. That, that didn't really work, but I spent like five minutes on it, so it's, uh, it's staying because I'm almost done. Anyway, I just wanted to show how much of a roll of the dice all this stuff feels like, and how many other places it could have gone under just slightly tweaked circumstances. I also wanted to end this at a time when Ukrainophile, agrarian kind of social democrats are the biggest show in town, and that nationalism isn't always just like a long march towards fascism. There's a reason that Lenin sees nationalism among the oppressed as a progressive historical force, and your average Ruthenian peasant, who we'll be talking about more next episode, was nothing if not oppressed. But if we can see how it was a liberatory and later a democratic movement that challenges imperial power on either side of this border, and how it shares those qualities with other nationalist movements in other countries, we can also see kind of what's weird and unique about Ukrainian nationalism that will have some of the problems it ends up having. How it's got this insecurity kind of built into it by having to argue not just that Ukrainians should be autonomous, but that there are such a people as Ukrainians at all. And that they're thus cast by this Russophile, Ukrainophile distinction into being anti-Russian and how that gets so closely identified with Ukrainianism so as to be inseparable. You can kind of see where this is going, right? It develops late because of Ukraine's, uh, Western Ukraine's social and political backwardness and on kind of a stunted path compared with these other countries. In summary, I think it's important to talk about these little intellectual ins and outs because the fascists that we're going to be talking about in future episodes, they claim a monopoly on Ukrainian nationhood and identity as part of their ongoing project to claim Ukrainians themselves, uh, both at home and abroad in the diaspora. They need these things to be true, and thus we need to show that they're not. So I've, I hope I've shown this, that nobody, that neither they nor anybody else can make an exclusive claim like this either now or then. One thing that Ivan Franco's Democrats do foreshadow is being way too trusting of friendly German speakers in uniform bearing gifts for the Ukrainian people. So, for that reason, I'd like to end this episode by congratulating Christian Freeland on her promotion to Minister of Finance for this great country. I know your grandfather is looking up at you and smiling. Next episode, we'll be getting back to a bit more of a blow-by-blow -blow narrative, which is better. Uh, this was your vegetables. Next one will be your dessert. Because I've told you who was fighting over Galician identity, but I haven't really told you what it was like there or anything. We're going to talk about exciting stuff like immigration and the politics of, of Edwardian North Saskatchewan. You know, you won't want to miss that. And hopefully... You know, inshallah, it comes out faster than this one did. Good God. I will speak to you all again soon. Keep your stick on the ice. <laughs>